0: We turn in God's Word tonight to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17, as we consider the last of the chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith tonight. And so the question will be, so when you're done with this, where do we go? We're going to go to First and 2 Timothy is where we're going to go. And when we're done with Leviticus, Lord willing, we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord willing. But for tonight, we're in the last chapter, dealing with the last judgment. And for that, we're going to deal with the Word of God as it's recorded in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 16 of Acts 17. So, chapter 17, but verse 16. Paul is uh, on the missionary journey, and uh, he is making his way uh, around about the Aegean Sea. He has uh, been to Philippi, he has been to Thessalonica, he has been to Berea, and now he has moved on to Athens. I could say he went through that certain straits where the Spartans uh, were supposed to be defending so honorably, but... That might not necessarily be applicable this evening. But Paul didn't take that way. He went by boat. We know that to be true. So, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their, from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysus the Areopagite. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I invite you to once again keep it open this evening. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, once again, we thank you for bringing us here this evening. We pray that as we hear your word spoken, it will come to our hearts and we hear your voice talking to us. We know, we pray it would be a Pastor vibes so that he would enjoy his delivery and that he. We will all be done for your honor and your glory. Amen. Amen. There are two things that as we approach this passage that I kind of marvel at. One is in regards to the passage, the other is in regards to the Westminster Confession that brings us to this point tonight. What I marvel at here. This doesn't seem like very good missionary messages. This does not seem to fit the typical mode that we often think about in terms of a missionary message. I mean, if you stop to think about it, as we read this section of Acts 17... One, Paul is dealing with the intellectuals of his day and not the poor. So much of what is carried on today in terms of missions centers upon the poor, helping them out. Now there's nothing wrong, obviously, with doing so. We see that oftentimes in the life of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting here, Paul doesn't go around Athens looking for a bunch of poor people that he might in some way help and assist, and by that means bring the message of the gospel. No, he goes after the intellectual elites. The second thing that, in regards to Paul here in this passage, is the content of the message. He does not shy away from dealing with the subjects that he knows are going to cause issues. The issue of creation, who is the creator. The the issue of man's formation. The issue of responsibility before a God who has given laws. He does not hesitate to go into the realm of judgment. And really there is very little here. That Paul really speaks about Jesus Christ. My guess is there might be some modern day evangelicals out there who would say, Paul did a lousy job of bringing the gospel this day. This was a bad gospel presentation. I'm not sure I want to charge the apostle Paul... A missionary to the Gentiles under commission of God, under authority of God, speaking the word of God to be doing a poor job of the gospel. Maybe it's just we need to have a better understanding of what the gospel really is. Those are the two things in regards to it. The thing in regards to the Westminster is this. We jumped last week from what happens to people when they die to the last judgment. And it's interesting, there is a subject that the Westminster Confession does not then deal with. When's Christ coming? There's no chapter entitled The Coming of Jesus Christ. There's no chapter entitled Eschological Views. Of the coming of Jesus. You might say. Yeah that is kind of interesting. How how come they don't deal with it? Well there are two theories. One. They realize that they are a divided body. And they were. These were not all people coming out of the stream, same stream of thought. And so perhaps to raise the subject they knew it was going to be divisive, and it's sort of like, we want to present this document, we want to present it to the king, We want to be in agreement on this document. Why would we put in something where we all can't agree? Could be. Or maybe they were so much in agreement, it was like, "Why do we need a chapter on that? We all agree. Christ is coming. That's what we just sang. Christ is coming. We agree. Everybody agrees Christ is coming. Now we could debate and argue when, how, where, but is he coming? Absolutely. The point that the Westminster wants you to understand is this. Christ is coming And there's going to be a judgment. And it's on that that the Westminster leaves. So as we reflect upon this tonight, I want you to think about three thoughts. One, the judgment that is given. The judgments, plural, that are given. Secondly, the judge who is identified. And thirdly, the justice that is rendered. And mainly, we're we're going to be looking at that that one verse that we have here at the end of chapter 17. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He has fixed a day. So first of all, let's consider the judgments that are given. God judges sin here and now. There's no doubt about it. It's not that God is withholding judgment and withholding judgment and withholding judgment and it's like he's building up, building up, building up, and finally at the last judgment, I'm just going to let you have it. No, every time you and I sin now, God judges that sin. God says, Bob, you sinned. God says, Mark, you sinned. God says, Kathy, you sinned. God makes a judgment about our lives. Every moment, every second of every day, God, as the judge, is judging our lives. And there are consequences that sometimes come from those sins. Here and now. So The the reason I make that point is that there are some people who think, well, God's not going to do anything about my sin, and God's not going to take my sin into account until the end of time. No, he's taking it into account now. And you have to be responsible before God now. In regards to the judgment of your sin that God is making. And you say, well how do I know? Because his word tells you what is sin. And when you and I commit those sins, we know that God is angry. We know that God's wrath is poured out against that sin. We know that we are under the judgment of God for that sin. Even as Christians... We don't, we don't get a free pass from that. And you say, yeah, but doesn't the psalmist say he does not treat us as our sins deserve? Amen. Thank you, God, for grace. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being long-suffering. No, you do He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Because if he treated us as our sins deserve, the moment we sinned, we'd be in hell for eternity. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. But that does not mean that God does not treat us by our sins. Doesn't mean God just overlooks. Go ask David. Hey, David, does God deal with your sin now? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my my family's pretty messed up. Yeah, my 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 son died. Yeah. I, I got a father-in-law who's in waiting to someday strike the sword to get me. Yeah, I got a whole nation out there that's whispering. Yeah, God deals with my sin. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. So that's a judgment now. But that's not what Paul is talking about, is he, here? That he has fixed a day. And so there's another judgment that comes. That that judgment comes on the day we die. Even as we were last week. On the moment we die, our souls... Immediately go to heaven or hell. Somebody's making a judgment. Somebody at that point in time, okay, is saying this person's soul goes to heaven, this person's soul goes to hell. We hear it in the words of Jesus, don't we? In Luke 23. Today you will be with me in paradise. There is a judgment going on. We hear it in the words of Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then what? Face judgment. When do you face the judgment? When you die. At the moment of your death, at that instant, when death has occurred, you will be judged. Your body also is judged in a moment, when you die. say, what do you mean by that? What is the judgment of God? Because of sin, what entered the world? Death. You mean everybody who dies, it's the judgment of sin? Yes. A judgment is taking place when we die. But that's not what Paul's talking about here either. On the day that is fixed. So the third thing in regards to that is to look at that on the fixed day. Because you see, this is another judgment. Yes, we face it in life on a regular basis. We face judgment the moment we die. But there is also this fixed day. It's known by... Probably a variety of names, but we might say it's known as the final judgment. This is it. There's no more judgment after the one that Paul is talking about in Acts 17. This fixed day. That's it. That's the final one. There's not going to be another one. There's not refinal. There's not post-final. There's a final one. That's it. It's going to happen. It's going to be the final judgment. Or, as the Westminster Confession calls this, the last judgment. No more judgments after this. This is it. That's what Paul is referring to in this verse. The very last, final judgment that man will ever face. No more judgment after this day. So secondly, in regards to that, think about the time that is indicated. Think about the way in which Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is bringing this out. Because he, that is God, has fixed a day. He has fixed a day. What does the word there mean? What does it mean to fix a day? To repair? No. Here, it means to set. To set in stone, it means to appoint, it means to make stand, it means to establish. There is a day in the wisdom and knowledge of God that is coming, a day that he has appointed. He knows the day, he knows the month, he knows the day of the month, he knows the year, he knows the exact time upon which this will occur. And I know that precisely because Paul chose not to use some term for day that means, oh, maybe a thousand years. No, he used the Greek word for day here. That means the time that exists between sunrise and sunset. That day. Yes, the time when the sun is actually visible. That day, that 12 hour period of time, that's what the text says. God has fixed in history at some point, at some time, there is a fixed day upon which he is going to render a final and a last judgment of every human being's soul and body. Be they alive, Or be they dead. We will all face a final, last, fixed day judgment. Or as Paul writes in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. The day of his return. Now, I'm going to answer a question because I I know I'm going to get it. It's not necessarily part of the sermon, but I'm going to answer the question. Because some of you are sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor Bob, if it's the time between sunrise and sunset, what about the people on the other side of the world? Okay, let me ask you a question. Is the appearance of Jesus Christ a miracle? Of course. Why? Because the passage tells us that every eye shall see him. That can only happen miraculously. The day that Christ returns is the day of a glorious miracle. How do I know that? Dead people are going to rise. That doesn't happen every day. Living people are going to be caught up in the air. That doesn't happen every day either. Seems to me we have miracle after miracle after miracle. Is it possible for God, on the day that Christ returns, to light the entire world at once? Well, of course, because who's coming? The glorious radiance of Christ. Can every eye behold him? Can every eye see him? Yeah, because God is going to bring about a miraculous return. It's a day of miracle after miracle after miracle, not the least of which is the miracle of his grace. Second point, so who's the judge? Well, let's look at what Paul writes here, Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. What is Paul saying? Who's the one who's going to be the judge? God. In the way in which it is used here, we would say that is a reference to the Father. It is God the Father who is going to be judging the world go with me to 1st peter chapter 1 1st peter chapter 1 verse 17 1st 1 peter 1:17 1, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds who's Peter saying is the judge, the father. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Acts, Romans, we're going backwards again. Romans chapter 2, find verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God... Judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Obviously, once again, a reference to the Father. Who is the judge? The Father. The Father never relinquishes his role as the judge. The Father, who is the creator of all things calls men to repentance men everywhere those who have refused to acknowledge him as creator he calls to account the father is the judge but it's something that he delegates that doesn't mean he isn't the judge He just delegates that the judging is done by someone else. John chapter 5. I just don't want you to be surprised at the last judgment who's standing in judgment upon you. John chapter 5. And the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. See, and even when we go back to this passage in Acts, he will judge men in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Who is that? The one he has raised from the dead. Who is that? Jesus Christ the father is the judge but he has delegated this responsibility to Christ it is Christ who will stand in judgment over our souls and our bodies because Christ is the judgment he is not only the judge he is the judgment what have you done With Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But if you do not believe, you are condemned already. Believe what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who knows more than anyone else whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ but the one who died and he knows those who are his. He knows those for who his blood was poured out for. Christ. And we confess that, don't we? He's the one who returns to judge the living and the dead. That's Paul's message to the folks there, the intellectual elites of his day. You're under the judgment of God because you have failed to repent. And to acknowledge Jesus Christ. Well, what happens? Thirdly, the justice that is rendered. Go with me, just keep your finger here if you would please at Acts 17. If, if we put it another way, we'd go back to, to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25. And it's here in Matthew chapter 25 that, that Jesus gives the, the picture of the final judgment. Actually, standing over verse 31 in many of your Bibles are probably those words, the final judgment. And what is it pictured as for us here? Once again, Jesus is painting an illustration for us. And, and what is it? It's a picture of some sheep and goats. And he makes a separation. And let me tell you, folks, it's not hard to tell a sheep from a goat. It's not like somehow or another you can make a big mistake over this one. It's not like somehow or another you you get a goat in a sheep camp and you go, how did, man, that that goat looks so much like a sheep. Or that sheep looks so much like a goat, I, I, I mistake. No, he uses this illustration because the people of his day understood clearly the separation. It's easy to tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. And I want to call your attention very quickly to three verses. Look at verse 33 in terms of his judgment. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats will go on his left. There is that separation, a final separation, a last judgment that is being made on that fixed day. When the sheep and the goats, when believers and unbelievers stand before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, some go to the left, some go to the right. I still think that's why there's more people always on this side of church than this side. Okay. Because you just somehow instinctively have have that in. But you see, if I go this way then you're the left, and you're the right. So it doesn't matter where you sit. So if that's been a concern of yours, you, you can switch sides once in a while. But it's a separation. On that fixed day, go down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, those that he has now separated from the sheep, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. What happens? What is the judgment that is rendered? You, there, you are going to the eternal fire. You notice what you don't hear? Uh, Sir, I have an objection to that. Sir, I'd like to make a motion in regards to that. Sir, I'd like to present an evidence. There is no trial. That's that's why this is not called the last trial or the final trial. It's the judgment. The trial is here and now. This is the time. This is the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no trial then. Because on that fixed day, he has appointed the one who will be the judge. We read it again down in verse 46 as if we didn't catch it before. And these, that is those on his left, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. What happens to the unbeliever at that judgment? They are separated from the sheep. They are told to depart from Christ into the eternal fire, into an eternal punishment. But thanks be to God, there are not just unbelievers that day. There's you and I. There are those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Those who don't scoff at the thought of a resurrection. Those who acknowledge the one who is the creator and from whom all men have come, the one man that he created. We, by grace, have come to know God's truth. God has opened our eyes. I don't know if you caught that or not, but if you go back and read Acts 17, there is an allusion to the fact that people are blind and they're searching. He is not far. Search, search, search. Why do they need to search if they can see? Because they're blind. Paul understands our condition. and He's urging those who are blind to see Christ to seek Christ but we know that can only be by God's grace he's opened our eyes to that glorious truth so there are three thoughts I want to leave to you about that day I don't know if as a kid I stopped listening I might well have I'm prone to that I think as a kid when these sermons were preached, all I heard was the judgment of God, the separation, the eternal fire. Maybe that's where it was left. Then it's the failing of the ministers that I heard. My guess is it was more my failing of stopping to listen. Probably because at that point I was so in terror of what that would be like. I didn't hear the grace. Listen to what happens, my friends. Listen, listen. May it encourage your heart. May it encourage your soul. May it grant you, even as we prayed for peace for Mark's mom, may it give you peace as you face your death. Three thoughts. One, there is a word of grace for you. There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. I don't know what you think that day of judgment is. I don't know what horrors you think God is going to reveal about you. But I know from the testimony of God's word. That there is blood all over my sin. And because the blood of Christ is all over my sin. There is now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ. Secondly. Not just a word of grace. But a declaration. Well done. Good. And faithful servant. Everyone. Everyone. Who is separated from those goats. Will hear well done. Well done. Enter into the joy of eternal life. That's all I need from the mouth of Jesus. I don't need to know, are there trees? Are there animals? I don't know if there are rivers. I don't need to know what it all looks like. I don't need to know I don't need to have somebody supposedly come back from the dead and tell me stories about what it's like. All I need to know is that it's a joy. It's a joy. That's what awaits you and I. An eternal life of joy. Pure. Unadulterated. Unadulterated. Cumbered by sin, forever and ever and ever and ever. Joy, joy, joy. And thirdly, it's a promise. Come unto me, every one of you, who are weary and heavy-laden. And I will give you rest. That rest is a deep word spiritually. That rest is a word that takes us all the way back to the seventh day of creation. It takes us all the way through Joshua. It takes us through Moses and the law. It takes us to Christ. It takes us to the eternal Sabbath. It takes us to rest. Finally, resting in Christ fully, completely. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're weighed down by the difficulties and stresses and strains, diseases and illnesses and sicknesses, frustrations, sinful behavior, sinful attitudes, an immoral world, My friends, look forward to the fixed day that God has appointed when Christ shall come. Separate you out as one of His sheep and say there's no condemnation in you because you're in me. We'll say to you, enter into eternal life where there is but joy and enter into an eternal rest. In God. In your Lord and Savior. Ah, the glories of Christ. Maybe that's the reason the Westminster Confession didn't delve into well, when's this all going to be? They just wanted us to know the beauty of that day. That day fixed by God when you, when you are brought into the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father. Truly was a marvelous missionary message. Rather than picking holes in it and rather than thinking about its ineffectiveness, Perhaps we should sit back and simply rejoice in the truth of it. What a blessed day. What a glorious day. Even now, the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns. That fixed day is but having our eyes opened fully to see the full extent of that rule and reign. And of his gracious provision, taking people like us and proclaiming us to be his. In and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. God's people say again, amen.